Mouthing Off is a theater, arts, and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Kevin Couchman. And I'm Mari Sidner. Mouthing Off features compelling interviews and discussions with creators and artists from around the Twin Cities and beyond. Tune in for something different online where you get your podcasts at badmouthtc.com and on the air in St. Paul from Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Mouthing Off, a theater, arts, and culture podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, people of uh, wizened years, seasoned years, friends and foes. We are back. I'm back with Kevin Kautzman, one of the illustrious uh, legs of the triangle here, and also Mm. Mari Sittner. How are you both? After you, Mari. You know, we're we're doing pretty good. It's always good to be on the old timey radio. And it's good to yeah. have you introducing the episode. Right. And this yeah. is going to be a special episode because our guest is actually one of the hosts, Kevin Kautzman, who wrote our latest show reading that we did at Waldman Brewery. Uh, and Kevin, mm. how are you? Welcome. I've. I'm. Uh, I, this is so nice. I feel like it's a surprise party when you introduce it like that, Amanda. Uh, <laughs> and of course, you know the play we're talking about is called The Animals. There are going to be uh, plenty of spoilers here, so if you have not listened to the recording we did of The Animals, which which features Amanda and some uh, other very talented actors, do I would say do that first. Now, if you're listening to this on the radio, hey, there are going to be some spoilers, but you can go to badmouthtc.com and hear that reading. It's about 70 minutes long. Uh, we didn't have an intermission when we did it at, at Waldman. Uh, and I, I had a great time. Did you enjoy it, uh, Amanda? Did you have fun doing it? I loved it. I had a great time doing it. And I want to dig in and do a full production of this play someday, somewhere, somehow it will happen. We'll speak it into the universe because this is just, as the kids say, a banger of a play. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Mari, Mm. what did you think of the recording? Since you didn't, you couldn't join us live. It's true. I could not be at the live show, but the recording was absolutely fantastic. The actors were wonderful. They were all great. We got to have uh, Ian back, who we've had read several of our plays in our last reading series, Live and Unlocked. It was wonderful to have everybody back. And you could say this play is, I would say, you could say a banger. I would say a mm. base. That's a word uh, you could use. Aha. Mm, uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think it's a it's a based banger. And of course, if you go and listen to it at badmouthtc.com, uh, the reading of it features Jim Aarons, our own Amanda Forstrom, Ian Hathaway, and Amber Wood. And my friend Sean Phillips uh, did some original music for it. We also have to say, Mari's play is coming up. Uh, here in St. Paul at Waldman. We'll be doing it later this month. It is the month of April. It is April 10th 
Uh, spring has sprung in Minnesota. I'm starting to believe again. And Mari will be back from New York for that reading. It will be at Waldman Brewery uh, on Monday, the 24th of April. Tickets are free. You just reserve a spot. All we ask is that you go uh, and support Waldman because they're very gracious hosts. You're not going to regret it. The food's amazing. Uh, they have their own beers. It is a swell time. And we had a very good turnout for that. I want to talk a little bit about your play too, Mari. But I think the principal purpose of this episode is like to talk about the animals, new play. I don't write a new play every week. Uh, so it's an exciting <laughs> thing. And we'll and we'll do a similar episode for, for your play, Mari, after that has been uh, read and recorded. It'll be online too. Nebraska. The name of of your play, Mari. Ne- Nebraska, mm. April twenty fourth, seven p.m. Waldman mm. Brewery. Be there, or you know, lose out because mm. the food and beverages are fantastic. Acting will be on point, and Mari's play is incredible. So mm. be there, mm-hmm. and we're all down to hang, so you can match our voices to our faces. Mm-hmm. Next time you listen <laughs> yes. on the old timey radio, you won't That's have right. to guess. Yes. DTH up in here. Uh, and we had a great turnout. I was I was very pleased. Uh, with, you know, that room is very intimate. If you fill that room up with a dozen, 20, 25 people, it feels packed. And for a new play reading on a Monday night in St. Paul, it's nice to see so many people turn out. So I really appreciate it. And as a playwright, it the play is a blueprint. So what a privilege to legitimately to hear it in front of people and to quite literally put end of play down on paper five days before the <laughs> and you've got you've got actors who've agreed to do it I, I, I love that about the theater it's not uh the theater is a very hot medium it's very active and it's always changing and it's very alive and uh that's one of my favorite things about about doing it um so yeah and, and well, amanda you have a yeah go ahead no, so I was going to ask, you know, let's go back to the beginning. When did you start writing and what got you interested specifically in theatrical and playwriting as oh, opposed to, you know, fiction or? Sure. Well, we only have so much time. Uh, I will say that as a as a child, one of the early memories I have is sitting on the bright green, heavily manicured grass at the North Dakota State Capitol. It seemed like we were at the Capitol all the time. The they had the Heritage Museum. There wasn't a lot to there there wasn't a lot to do out in North Dakota. So the field trips would start to like repeat. Uh and of course the North Dakota State Capitol is uh the one skyscraper in the state. It's actually an old art art deco building it's it's quite uh lovely and um i remember there was a storyteller who came i must have been hmm. five or six and the storyteller sat us around you know in a circle as you do with kids and told us a story can't remember the story but i do recall they gave us little books and my book, like a like a journal, very thin little journal you'd give to a kid. And mine had like gray wolves on the cover 
and they pointed to it and said, ah, see, now you can write your own story. And I thought as a kid, that was the coolest possible thing that blew my mind. And I was raised by school teachers, uh, elementary. My mother was a, an elementary and then a high school teacher. Uh, and so our family just put a tremendous amount of value on stories and reading. And I was a, I was an obsessive reader. Uh, and then flash forward, you know, it was sort of abortive attempts at, uh, attempts at writing and, you know, in high school and just terrible. And then I was at the university here in Minnesota, go Gophers, and many years later. Uh, and... I, ha I tried my hand at prose and I was sort of writing and then even like, you know, uh, trying to trying to write novels and just going, oh, these are of course, these are terrible. Uh, and I realized I was lonely. I liked writing dialogue. Uh, and I had always been interested in the theater and in high school, uh, I, you know, I sort of lurked around the theater. I did some backstage stuff. And I was never an actor or anything. Um, and I kind of put two and two together and just made my way into a community theater here in North Minneapolis, uh, the workhouse theater, which I don't think exists anymore. But first I, I literally went into like a, um, uh, like a community acting class, you know, I hey, give us 80 bucks and you'll go to these classes night after night, because I, I had tried my hand at writing a play, uh, something registered with me when I was at university, I took a, like an English seminar, one of those seminars where they just jam, 400 undergrads in a room and the professor has to host like a small rock concert every day. And we had this outstanding professor whose name I, I should look up. It'd be on my transcripts, but we covered fences at one mm. point. And I, something about that play, obviously that's a masterpiece. It's a great play. And he mentioned the playwright center and I was sort of squirreling things away in the back of my mind going, Oh, that's interesting. There's just something about the play format um, that I just think it's such a lovely format for a writer it can hold typically it will hold more uh, potential for for catharsis for relief for realization than a short story typically will barring obviously there are some extraordinary short stories and there's you know but it it doesn't have the same degree of commitment or isolation that the writing of fine prose novels requires. If mm. you burn uh, two months drafting a play and it it falls completely flat, you've, you've burned two months and maybe you've learned something. If you do the same with a novel and the novel is, is terrible, the I guess the opportunity cost is ex is is extraordinary. Um, so and there's some so there's something about a the, the theater that's very appealing to me. Plus, you get to work on it in collaboration, like we do. Uh, you you know you finish writing a scene, you can take it into a room with actors. I also really like the uh, kind of how um, uh, uncommercial the theater is. It's just not commercial, and I like that purity to it so anyway so long story short so i you know i took that that acting class i figured if you're gonna write a play you need to at least dabble a little bit in acting because you're writing for actors i think trying to write a play without having done at least a little bit of acting uh is like trying to write a symphony but you've never played an instrument i just mm. don't see how 
somebody can can do it. So my first advice to to playwrights, not that you ask, but if anybody's asking, it would be it's to read a lot of plays, but then to go and do an acting class if if you've never done one. For sure. Yep. I mean, I could go on for another 20 minutes, 20 minutes about all this, but yeah, go on. No, I was just going to ask, what was the feeling like and what was going through your head the first time that you had actors read your piece? Wow, I don't even know if I can remember when that happened. I I went right off the deep end because uh, I got... <laughs> Didn't we well, all? Well, yeah, but I landed in, I had the opportunity to go and live over in England for a year. I was working remotely and uh, my partner at the time was, uh, she was studying uh, neuroscience over in London. And I just landed in the Royal Court's Young Writers Program, not even knowing like what it was. I just sent an email and here I am. And obviously just a tremendous Philistine and every reference I would make would be to film and they would just... I was an oddity for sure. Mm. I think I contributed something interesting to that scene for a minute. We started our own little writers group. I acted in a play over there. I was in Camus uh, Caligula and I got in a year just this completely I was fully baptized in new writing and the power of new writing and the small aggressive extremely politically aware but not political uh not always political they're not hmm. they're very good at, at avoiding polemic over there it's it's laid in the drama comes first and the dramaturgy comes first but i got i just got hit hard in that year i was in the royal courts young writers program that i got into their advanced group uh i split time between that and the play i probably should have not done that play but I'm glad I did. It was a good experience. It was fun. Uh, but I was sort of trying to do everything. I was doing voiceover. And I was really getting into it all. I was over at the Soho Theater. I saw so much theater. That was one of those years where, do you know in your life how, how like certain periods of time kind of glow or like shine? Mm. And you know, I've had maybe six or seven periods like that where there's just a you just go, did that all happen in a year? Mm. Like just this compressed, like a can of just compressed air or whatever. And just, oh, it's all jammed in that year. And I, I saw so much great theater. I learned what I don't like. I learned what I like and uh, just had a tremendous time. Then I came back to, and it must have been, it must have been at the court when, when I first started to, to hear my, my writing aloud. And I was experimenting very heavily. I didn't didn't have a clue what I was doing at all. <laughs> we were just trying to find you. You know, they say find your voice, and I I think I hate I hate that phrase, but you have to find your voice. <laughs> you know, you do. It's like, are you? What are you trying to do? Um, but I just had a tremendous time, and the way they the way they treat theater over there uh, is just so wildly different from from over here. It's there. It's almost like a kind of athletics. And they mm -hmm. train with like an, an athletic intensity. Not to say that that doesn't happen over here, but it's just a different culture because, and I saw you uh, want to come in, Murray, but just one final thought. London is, uh, obviously they have a much higher opinion of theater in their culture than America does. Uh, and given the sort of the um, 
I guess the demographics and also the the geography of a city like London, it's the cultural capital, the publishing capital, the media capital, the capital capital, the finance capital, mm. and the arts and culture capital. And it's all jammed in one place. Whereas in the United States, we've got New York over here, DC over here, LA over here. Everybody's got to drive, except for maybe what one or two of those, but you know, it's in Chicago here. And so it creates this like kind of amorphous, uncertain. This just doesn't have the same boiling over quality. Some some anon online talked about, wrote about this recently, about how like the reality of the theater in the Anglosphere, in the English world, is that like 25 to 50,000 people in London determine the course and direction of the of the theater. And it's mm, the theater, wow. the theater goers who do. Uh, but obviously the people programming it and, and all the rest. So yeah, lots to think about and chew on. But I'm so glad that we met uh, the three of us and we're doing our own thing in here in St. Paul and and in Minneapolis soon, we're going to do this production of uh, One Good Marriage by Sean Raycraft, a Canadian playwright, wrote this great play, actually just said, hey, yeah, go do the play. I love I, I love that about theater because I don't like generally, I don't gravitate toward like big, expensive, spectacular productions. Like, that's great. Lion King on Broadway. Amazing. Definitely cool. Very interesting theater, but like not the greatest thing I've seen by a mile. The greatest stuff that I've seen, some of it is like happened in a like in a backyard in Austin, Texas. I went to grad school um, after I came back from from England. I I got on a fellowship at the Playwright Center. I was very fortunate that I kind of got to point at different MFA programs and say, okay, I'm going to go somewhere that's going to pay me. So I, I went to the. I don't recommend people pay for an MFA. So I ended up down in Austin at the Michener Center on an MFA for creative writing. And yeah, there's a production of one of my very favorite plays, Proof, um, hmm. that happened in a backyard. And like, love that play. It's such a good play. That that's actually one of the plays that I saw that play in production here, David Auburn. Uh, in St. Paul, this ex-girlfriend of mine was an usher and I got in and I sat in the back and I saw that play and I said, I could, I bet I could do that. I could do that. Anyway. Yeah. Mari, (laughs) what's up? Well, you mostly answered my question. I really just wanted to talk more about your time in London because I feel like London is every Mm. theater kid's dream, even Mm. more than New York. But Mm. now I kind of want to talk about, yeah, your time at the royal court and how that moved into graduate school and -hmm. what you think about grad school and academia for theater and all this i'm i'm curious do you think that it's the thing to do for a young writer i ask selfishly (laughs) Mm. an mfa program i would say uh short of grandma and grandpa paying for it and paying you a living like way through and even then i would say don't pay for an mfa i i say that to everyone universally uh there's a- any of the program that any of the programs that you're going to want to get into are going to pay you or have a very clear uh way for you to get paid by doing teaching the yes. Michener center is unique because you don't teach and 
that's that's a bit of a blessing blessing and a curse because a lot of people like want to go on and be professors although that door is closed for for most people so it's almost sort of like who cares uh and there are ways if you get into the Michener Center and of course the Michener Center for writers is uh from the James Michener's money and now I actually think the Steinbeck estate left them a house somewhere out east now too so there's going to be an additional kind of merger there but yeah the Michener Center is three years is fully paid at that time I already had my my first uh child and my my beautiful daughter Eleanor and it, it was just a no-brainer for me to to go to a program that would give me that extra leisure I don't have to teach and also like I can kind of skate by and and live off of, of off of this money I mean the MFA is I mean, you could look at it as almost like a kind of patronage. If you can get into one of those programs and you're young and you can live off of that income, maybe augmented by a little bit of additional income, do it. But definitely don't take out a loan to go and get. I'm not going to name names, but I mean, even the professors, I'll tell you, like in the Whisper Network, they go, what are we doing? Like they've begun 10 years ago, they were beginning to realize uh, that they were part of a rather rapacious and frankly evil system of indenturing the young into these careers that are uh, a, an absolute dead end and the ladder's been pulled up. I don't want a black pill. The other thing I'll say is you uh you can do on your own a very tidy and especially if you're in a place like New York, a place like Chicago, even Minneapolis, even the Twin Cities. You could put together a program for yourself that does what you're going to get out of an MFA program. You won't walk out with a certificate, but uh, like for and for example, of course, in the UK, they don't really there isn't the same. They don't have the MFA kind of uh, track. They do have like you could do a year here, you could do a year there, but like if you're in London and you're working class or middle class, uh, whatever, you can put together, you could be taking day courses. You could start your own group. I mean, I just heard from a, a friend of mine out in New York City who we'll try to have on the pod at some point. He's a playwright, Aaron Squire, and he runs a writer's group at the Dramatist Guild. And I don't know how much I should talk about this, but you know they're talking about possibly branching out and having different groups in different cities that are sort of formally attached to the Dramatist Guild, but which are gathering. That if you do that yourself, and you get a little workshop of writers and actors together, all you're missing out on from like the MFA experience is the debt. If you go into debt, which again I think I've been very clear, you should never do for it. Um, and then like the formality of like the classes and the structure, but there's also just a tremendous amount of nonsense that comes along with academia full stop. There's backbiting, there's competitiveness, there's you're vying for slots even inside these programs. And there's this weird like status obsession. And then people don't, you don't know what you're going to do after you're done too. Like mm -hmm. some of the, some of the Michner's, have really won the lottery. They've gone on, they've had different careers, but not everybody's going to come out of a program like that with a novel and a, and a six figure advance. Uh, and, and uh, if you go on LinkedIn with your MFA and your theater resume, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to keep a roof over your head. So you have to be, you have to be smart and savvy about it. I would say Mari, 
in New York, I would just I would just look to find a, a balance where you're writing, where you're working. If you if you're thinking about an MFA, I would work on building up your your CV so that when you apply for an MFA program, it you are bringing value to that program as much as the program is like giving something in exchange for you because they want well-rounded theater people who are willing to jump in and act direct right uh and that will go a long way and i would just say don't apply to anything like it it kind of is a bummer because it makes every program a reach program because the programs that that do provide support are all like the the giga programs that everybody talks about but it's just not worth taking out i mean walking out with an mfa and 60 grand in debt it's it's not reasonable yeah mm-hmm. yeah go on yeah more. and i was i was with two of my good friends who are also young playwrights here two people roman d'ambrosio and cara gordon who are great playwrights here in new york and we all discussed how we have no desire to go to grad school and how the most important thing really is just to work with people who share your values which is what we are doing here at badmouth theater company which leads us to i'd like to segue into talking about the animals kevin can you give us a little what do you, how uh, would you what's your log line for the animals? My log line to? for the animals. Well, let go. me go let me go to badmouthtc.com and refresh myself. Uh I don't even know that I have it in front of me. I, I can just spitball. The animals is a play about uh addiction, unrest, the opioid crisis, and a veterinarian in a place very much like the Twin Cities who talks to the animals it is that's the log line and i for a minute i was sort of saying it's like uh fear and loathing in las vegas meets dr doolittle meets killing them softly the great uh james gandolfini and brad pitt film uh yeah that's that's the log line for the animals it's also it's a revenge fantasy uh it's a play about revolution and it's it's a play about the voices that I think all all of us are hearing, or most many of us are hearing, but which very few people are willing to acknowledge we're hearing. It's also a play about crypto, but yeah, it's it's about a woman named Diana who goes by the name Diana, who works the night shift at a veterinary clinic, and the world is starting to burn around her. It's a world like ours. The airborne plague is happening and she's addicted to oxy and going in and out of uh, highs and withdrawals. And she talks to the animals and her, her animal best friend is a, is a snake who told her to invest in crypto because if they get the crypto money, they're not going to uh, go live somewhere on a beach. They're going to do something rather dramatic. And that is that is the animals, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, helpful. Yeah, <laughs> more, I think yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and I think what I love about the play is that it is the sentiment of now that people, 
you know, those voices that are tamping down and trying to not hear or say that they don't hear and are unwilling to acknowledge. And so this play does that in a really radical and beautiful way. Mm. So congratulations on that. Yeah. And you played Diana. So that was a lot of fun to see to see you do that. And I felt I felt like the the reading was uh very well received. Uh, there was a in the second act there's a parrot who and Mari you weren't there so I'll relay this to you. Uh there's a parrot that's brought in which has lost his voice and he quickly rediscovers his voice when he is talking to Diana and he's reciting all of this anarchy anarchist uh literature and all the rest of it. And at some point the parrot meets meets its demise and that got a that got a gasp that got like a oh, an audible gasp and at a reading if you can get an audible gasp like laughs are easy people want to laugh even tears are sort of a mo you know kind of easy but a gasp you can't you can't manufacture a gasp so that made me happy yeah yeah i'm <laughs> curious when you were writing this play because this play stars like you said a parrot many other animals which animal came to you first oh good oh interesting uh it was the it was the snake yeah i tend to write my plays you know chronologically beginning to you know beginning to end uh and yeah she's having a conversation with the with a domesticated uh snake and uh i knew that there was going to be a snake then it was the minor bird which mm -hmm. is a very different tone all of the animals have a wildly different tone, and I'm quite happy uh, with that. And of course, they're all meant to be played by the same actor. So it's a three-hander. Uh, an older man plays the animals, and there's Diana, and then there's Pitbull, who is not an animal. He is some sort of an internet uh, villain, played He's by the great an animal, Ian. figuratively. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Mm. I, you know, and and getting into the idea of like what's going on uh and the voices there's a there's a woman on twitter and she wrote last night her name is michelle tandler she's like x mckinsey so she's some sort of like high grade white collar consultant and she wrote this absolute monster tweet thread about living in san francisco and how her like the world is kind of falling around her I just want to read a few, and this is relevant to the animals. I want to read mm. a few of the things she tweeted last night. Imagine this scenario. It's 12.30 a.m. and your dog woke you up because it needs to go to the bathroom. You walk outside and sleepily shuffle down the street in your slippers. Suddenly you spot a man, half naked, with a comforter draped over him, stumbling out of the park toward you. What do you do? This was me last night. And this is me most nights. At night, weird men who are clearly not mentally sound are wandering around my apartment. The other night at 4 a.m., we came across someone violently hacking away at the grassy area on my block with a shovel. He was stealing the grass, scooping up the contents in a grocery bag. As he saw me, he scurried away with his bags of grass. The area is now a hole of dirt. Many days, I park and walk past people dancing on the hill next to my home. If you see a man in his 30s dancing erratically near your home, what do you do? 
in these moments, the first thing I think is meth. Then I start planning my safety. Should we turn and walk the other way? Is my dog going to bark? Should we pretend like nothing is happening? Should I start carrying carrying mace? Constantly living in fear takes a toll, albeit a small one. The thing is, it's small and consistent. Every time you feel scared, your body releases cortisol and adrenaline. Needless to say, it took me some time to fall back asleep, as often happens after these encounters. Just a bit more. For the ultra-wealthy in San Francisco, life is generally free of these moments. Super-rich people in SF live on hills because uh, crime don't climb. Or they live far out west, protected by a lack of public transportation, which, by the way, is by design. And it goes on, and she talks about these daily occurrences, and then she says this... And they were they were talking about uh, the the murder of the uh, the tech executive Bob oh, Lee, the cash app, mm. the cash app fellow, and this is sort of all coming out there. She talks about being, you know, uh, you know, voting Democrat, blah blah blah. But this is where she arrives. Ah, uh, yesterday I was in a group chat talking with tech execs about the Bob Lee murder. All of them agreed they would not have helped had he approached their car showing his stab wounds. What? Seriously? A bleeding man approaches your car and you do nothing? Our society seems to have become seriously complacent. 100 years ago in San Francisco, people were publicly hung for their crimes, often by vigilante groups that wanted to send a message. The hangings worked. Crime would plummet after a few of them, often for many months at a time. Now, at this point, by the way, I just want to say I'm not co-signing any of this. I'm simply pointing out that we have normal people now on Twitter with careers, full-blown LinkedIn career, like fancy high-status careers posting this. I'm not done. A few questions on my mind this morning. What changed that the men of San Francisco went from creating vigilante groups to being afraid to even tweet about crime? What would happen if a few meth dealers were publicly hung? Theoretically, if publicly hanging, say, five fentanyl dealers led to saving the lives of hundreds, is it morally responsible? Why would most San Francisco residents view my question above as horrifying and immoral? What do other countries do with their fentanyl dealers? Just a bit more. Why aren't the men of San Francisco rallying together to protect our city's women and elderly from drug-induced violence? Why is everybody so afraid to talk or write on these issues? Why are people apparently okay living amidst this level of chaos and the animals points points in that direction i'm not saying i have an answer and i'm not saying i agree with this woman or even think that her line of questioning is responsible uh i i don't know why someone with a blue check on twitter would take to the platform to tweet those things i know a lot of crazy anons (laughs) who might but we have full-blown normies talking about vigilantism and public executions on Maine, on Twitter, in America, circa 2023. The animals are loose. 
the animals are loose and yeah it's wild out here it is yeah yeah and and of course it's not just san francisco but the fact that people have reached this point and this qualifies as discourse of course she's just getting completely lambasted uh from from different sides and i i didn't dig too much into the comments about it but that got traction on the bird website uh in any case my play if you if you liked her tweet you might be interested in the animals it, it it at this point if you're not looking around and let's just say you're not right in the smack dab middle of the overton window if you're not looking around and going what what are we doing what is going on i don't know what to tell you i mean go back to sleep i guess but i can't well it really seems like in that way the animals did capture the psychological state of the normal American. I mean, you talk to the most normal people and everybody realizes that something has gone awry and no one really knows what to do. And it does feel like we're we're in the vet's office all night with nothing to do but go through the esoteric book collection and talk to the snake. And whatever happens, happens. Right. Right. And then, it, we, and then if, yeah, go ahead. No. And we, and that's, we fall into pit bulls. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I hope the play is, is timely and that people resonate it with, uh, with it. My, my previous play moderation, which you can find at moderationplay.com, got a lot of love and the awkward compliments like, Oh, Kevin, your play is so timely during the middle of lockdowns and COVID and the unrest and the madness and everything. Um, so hopefully people, hopefully the animals finds a way to have some sort of a home or a life because one reading is certainly not enough. Yeah, Amanda. No, I was just going to say that the first time I r- encountered your work was moderation for spooky action theater in DC. And we did a zoom a recorded zoom version of the play because it was during lockdown. And the first thing that struck me was that there are really no other plays like this. There are no, I haven't encountered any work that's looking forward or imagining where we could be in five months, five years, 25 years. Those are really rare because I think people are scared of what they might write. And there's a tons of plays that are memory plays and, you know, uh, things about the moment, but not about what could happen, if that makes sense. Mm. And that's something I really appreciate about your work. Like, what is the logical conclusion of this chaos or mm. or exploring what those pathways might lead to? Sure. Yeah. And one character has to do the one thing that you maybe wouldn't do because you're tethered to safety or tethered to the world. That's what makes that that's what makes good drama, I think, is is people push too far. People who do something that's extreme, uh, that that lends itself to drama. But you, with the hook that it's like, well, they're a lot a lot like me. Me, if I mm-hmm. didn't have anything to lose, or if I was just if the chemical chemicals in the brain started turning just a slightly different way, you could sort of see yourself going that way. And then also the audacity to say the things um that people are thinking but are too afraid to say. Now with the animals, I have the the fun of like 
having her talking to these animals, which is a conceit that I was like terribly anxious about because it's a bit of a cliche. It 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 kind of feels like like almost like immature writing, like a young playwright would go, well, I'm going to have them talk to the animals and it's going to be like this. And Robin Williams will play the tiger and or whatever else, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of tired. Right. But I, I was moved to do it. And I, th- I think it, I think it works. Hopefully it works in the, in the context of this play. I don't think I'll be writing another play with talking animals anytime soon. Uh, yeah, go on. Well, I think it was a device that allowed you to be honest about, and there's something about animals because they have this innocence of not knowing of not knowing what's going on and what they're doing and and you know they're just animals so i think that was really beautiful too but i i have a question well let me let me let me just say before you ask it that is the central metaphor of that play this play has multiple metaphors operating but the audience is doubled with the animals and if you don't think that collectively we've been put into a state not unlike an animal trapped in a cage. You might not be able to see the bars, but we're operating at that level. We don't know. Are we all going to die? Uh, are they, what, what's going to burn next? Uh, now we know there's this AI that, and if any, any AI we're seeing publicly, they've had for five, 10, 15, 20 years, I guarantee it. There's no way that they're just letting us have this and we're all discovering it together. No. (laughs) Uh, So we live in this, in the big zoo, I've started to call it. And Americans hitherto, the bargain in this country was something to the effect of, well, this, there's not going to be much of a safety net. You're going to have to lean on your family, your church, your local community, if you can get it. The bottom is really, really, really low, but the middle is thick and the highs are unlike any other place in the history of the world. That was the bargain in America, the freedom. And then now after after lockdowns and closing churches and closing uh, schools and all the rest, and then how tech plays into all of that, the I really do think the scales have fallen off our eyes and we all have to deal with this low-grade throbbing hum of like a trapped animal. I think that that's how I experience it. So the metaphor carries. But yeah, what was your question? No, I was just going to ask if you wanted to speak to, because when you were writing this play, we had the first half that you had kind of workshop with um, with the New York group. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was amazing. And then for this reading series, you were finishing the second half. And did you want to speak to the moment of when it, you know, synchronized for you, if if you will. Sure, I like that. Yeah, and that was with Cut Edge uh, Collective, is a group out in New York that I co-founded. We had Tom on the on mm-hmm. the uh, pod here, and yeah, I I wrote the first act in like three or four days, and I had up until the sort of point where. She gets what she wants, and then she she starts to execute her plan, uh, and then. We did the reading and it was very satisfying. I got a lot out of it. You you played Diana. I don't think her name was Diana at that point. No. And then no. a great actor named Cash Tilton read the animals and just committed so hard. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine anyone else doing this. Um, Jim ended up doing a, a bang up job. But, uh, but then I put it aside because, and that's happened to me with one other play I, I wrote like that. My play, If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn which is an internet sex comedy that had a bit of a life. It got produced in New York. That play, I thought it was going to be like this forever. I sent that play 
to a theater company in New York City and they emailed me back the next morning saying we want to produce your play. I thought, oh, it's that easy. It's going to be like that for it's not like that. I'm a writer now. I'm a writer. Look at me. Gee whiz. Uh, But I I still have friends from that show, uh, that production. And but I wrote the first act of that and then sat that aside. And then it was only when I got to grad school and I shared it with one of my professors and she said, just finish it, finish, write the second act. Okay. Um, but this one, I think, I think in both the cases, like I, the, what the play is about in the case of fire. And then also in the case of the animals, I needed to see how it played out. I was right in the thick of it with the airborne plague which I'm now call I'm calling that event that forever with the airborne plague and uh and then the the civil unrest that was happening particularly in Minnesota I just needed to see what it looked like on the other side mm. uh and it's I think it's fair to say I mean they just canceled the the covid emergency the federal covid emergency today uh I don't know if you so Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. COVID is over if you want it. John Lennon and Yoko are COVID is over if you want it. And now it is because they just announced it. So anyway, so now on the other side with some degree of clarity and also a very firm deadline because we had actors booked and everything, I was able to to write it in a way that I think feels uh, justified. I've also wanted to write an opioid play for a long time. And this play was a way to to get out some very personal stuff uh, because the opioid crisis, it's not a crisis. It's it's a fixture of American life. Calling it a crisis is what they want to do. Like 60 minutes, the crisis, the crisis. It's been going on for 30, 40 years, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. That's not a crisis. Yeah. That is That is the failure of society, the failure of culture, the greed of big pharma, and uh, the, the complicity of uh, everyday people, frankly, uh, never mind the the dealers and now the fentanyl problem and all the rest of it. But yeah, I hate that they call it a crisis, but I wanted to write about that for a long time in this play, like, let me get an angle um, to do that. <laughs> yeah. What what fun! So and maybe we'll produce it at some point. I would love to see how we would design the animals and how they would talk. And uh, Jim with his with the the parrot with the the high English accent, the high you know, uh, talking about anarchy with a very high English accent is never not funny. <laughs> Here, Proudhon, we see. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, right. He quotes he quotes Nietzsche and KMFDM. And of course, and the other thing I got to tell you, the other thing is Pink Floyd, the uh, Pink, Flo- Pink Floyd Animals is like, my, it's my favorite Floyd album. I love that album. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but it's, it's amazing. And I wanted to call this play Animals, but I was like, I can't, I can't, uh, because I can't name my play the same thing as, <laughs> as a Pink Floyd album. I would feel really bad. So, Yeah. A lot the of comparison fun. would just be too, yeah, too, too up close. Too yeah. on the, too on the snout. Too on the snout. <laughs> too yeah, on the beak. yeah. Too on the beak. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Well, and yeah. So I don't know. You know, I hope that sells the play. I I have some some interesting, exciting ideas. We're gonna write a one woman show for 
for Amanda. And I started, I started Lord working help today. Me. Oh yes. Yeah. You're going to need it. You're in trouble. Um, I, I started working today on our, our adaptation of the great F Scott Fitzgerald short story, winter dreams, which is going to mm-hmm. be part of art of darkness live. My other podcast, art of in June at Waldman, we're going to be doing a live podcast uh, recording. And then it's going to, it's going to conclude or the set, the second part of it is going to be the theater company doing this theatrical presentation of this amazing short story by Fitzgerald. I can't wait to do that. So I'm working on that now. Then I'm going to, then I think I'm going to start working on the one, one person show, one being show for you, uh, Amanda. I've always wanted to write a one person show, but I've never had, yeah, I've never had like an actor friend the way that, that we're friends and collaborators where I thought, I'm going to do it for this, uh, maybe one, but I, it was, was a long time ago in a different life. And it was just never right. But this is right. We have an outlet and a one person show can absolutely crush, crush. if it's done properly. Yeah. yeah. And well, it can travel. And uh, oh, that's my favorite part. And it and it can be intimate and huge at the same time, which I just love. And I mean, as an actor, how spoiled am I that I have somebody writing you know, whose stuff I could just do. I mean, dang, I'm mm. very spoiled. Mm. So I'll mm. take it. Well, it's one yeah. of the best parts of having a talented actor in your company is you wait, can wait. write great this parts. This episode is about Kevin, Mari, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, and, and from a writing standpoint, I mean, all of the material that, that I've done moderation, you know, twice now, and maybe even three times. So we've done it three times. Mm, I think twice. so. Yeah. No, twice. Yeah. So you were a spooky, spooky, and then Badmouth did it. Yeah, but then the theater in LA did it. Oh yeah, blank. Yeah, yeah the blank. So, three, so that would be three times. Yeah. 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 And yeah. and then the animals. And I just yeah, I love the writing. It's fresh. It's exciting. It's raw. It's. Yeah, and it's it's all of the things that people want to say but are too afraid to. And I just love it. I love it. Well, no. that's kind of the through line from moderation to the animals is, Kevin, you taking these kind of risky, inaccessible themes mm. and putting them in a way that is so accessible that just mm. everybody understands because we're all in the same psychological state. It's just that some people will say it and some people won't. Right. With uh, like the opioid, uh, you know, part of it. And then you have the crypto part of it and you have these animals and and Diana and the, it just all comes together so beautifully. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'll try to do that with the, the thing that I write for you. I think it's going to I think it's going to be called Next Door, but I'm not I'm not certain. Uh, it'll be a no lot spoilers. of spoilers. And I yeah, but I one thing that I've admired for a long time is and the other podcasts I do Art of Darkness is we do biographical profiles of dead artists. And so we cover great artists, Stanley Kubrick, Marlon Brando. And you notice this time and time again, great talent uh, for in film, in theater, they have a they have collaborators. They have people that they join up with and they make their careers together uh, almost to a point where the loyalty becomes insane. See Scorsese and the Irishman where you go, 
what do you cast some new talent? Like right. what are we I was doing just gonna here? say that. I mean, and I love Scorsese. I've got to yes. apologize a million times. I know he had a vision. He's a he's a, a national treasure. But there's a part of me as a younger, not even that young anymore, but just sees that and goes, Oh man, can we just give somebody a shot? You could have made five careers here. Uh in any case, Bergman had his was running a theater company and then they would just rotate it and out and use actors i love that i love that we're doing poor theater maybe one day we get our own space maybe one day we're not as poor but i just love that we can do this we could put out old-timey radio 94.1 fm Frogtown in st paul and people can online uh, you know online can hear it they can hear the reading of my play and they can hear mari's play coming up soon mari how is nebraska going do you have a play? Have I ins- inspired you one iota? Or are I'm we very are we- inspired? The play oh, good. Hmm. is coming. It is hmm. much farther along than it was last week. That's what I will say. Whatever you guys have read, get ready for something else. Okay. Hopefully, it's not too long. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> right, and of course, uh, just like. Uh, moderation last year and the animals we will record her play nebraska it will be available online but if you're in the twin cities or the greater metro even wisconsin will let you come over uh you got to definitely come down and see what we're doing at waldman get on the mailing list follow us on social media badmouthtc.com at badmouthtc and mari i just i love that feeling of like I really do like a deadline and I, you know, and now I, I think for this like one woman show, I think, Ooh, I think we probably have to give me a deadline now that I think about it. I Tomorrow. think, I, no, 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 <laughs> I'm, uh, no, no, no. But I think Amanda, we're going to have to talk about this because I think we should, we should set a deadline because deadlines are motivating. Aren't they Mari? You just, you get your juices going, you know, you have to finish something. Well, they make it really real. And that's something about playwriting that, is so motivating is that you know we've started the casting process for the reading that's in a couple of weeks and all of a sudden you have actors signed on and it becomes so real and you have to have something to give to them and you want to give them the best possible thing because they've been kind enough to agree to collaborate with you and so that really puts a lot of pressure on is to have great collaborators yes one question. Do we have time? Yeah. So 90 seconds. How do you, oh, gosh. OK, so how do you both like when is it you say end of play? You know, my hands are off the keyboard because as an actor, you can like keep going or do the play in five years and like discover more. So when is that moment? Is it ever comfortable? Do you ever feel comfortable doing that? Or is it always like it's never really finished? It's never really finished. It's never really finished. Oh, no. <laughs> Scripts are a blueprint. Yeah, it's it's never really finished. And then it, it, it's not even finished at opening night. I mean, you have some playwright, yeah. playwrights will be rewriting after a preview. Uh, much to the rewriting much to the actor's chagrin, memorizing new, yeah, right, memorizing right. new pages. <laughs> but, but that said, and this will be, I'll just say the final word uh, on that topic, and then we'll have to go. Thank you for listening to Mouthing Off, a theater arts and culture podcast on Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM and online from Bad Mouth Theater Company with the great Amanda Forstrom, Mari Sittner, and myself. I will say, don't get precious about it. Write a play. Make sure it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
write something that y- you think an actor is going to want to do. Don't throw don't mm. throw too many roles in your early plays. Try to write something for two people, three people, four p- people. And when it's done, put it aside for a minute, and then the real work begins. Uh-huh. End of play. 